welcome to part three of 20 Years On, where for the next few weeks we look back at Hong Kong's highs and lows since July the 1st back in 1997. I'm Anna Fenton. This week we're talking about subversion, secession, sedition and state secrets. Sounds like a James Bond plot, doesn't it? But these ominous words form the background of our proposed national security legislation. Article 23 claimed the political scalps of the SAR's first chief executive, Tung Chi Wa, and the then security chief, Regina Ip, after they failed to rush the new law through in 2003. It prompted half a million people to take to the streets on July the 1st, and again a week later on July the 9th, in a night march this time, sparking the annual tradition of July the 1st marches. Article 23 has rumbled away ever since, unresolved. But now, Beijing has lost patience, and the legislation is back. It now looms large on new Chief Executive Carrie Lam's to-do list. Retired civil servant and author of Paper Tigress, Rachel Cartland, explains why it all kicked off in 2003. I see that as an immensely important year, an absolute watershed. I actually think that SARS was almost more important than the Article 23 legislation, or in a strange way it paved the, paved the way for it. How did it do that? Because the psychological trauma of the community was so great. Uh, if you look at SARS objectively, um, 300 people died, which was tragic. Uh, but objectively, that's a small number. Objectively... The government actually handled the situation extremely well to deal as it did with a completely unknown disease that nobody in the world had got any idea. What is it? Is it infectious? What will the mortality rate be? A, a disease for which there was never, in fact, found any cure. And we actually all worked together, um, frankly speaking, with really... In, quite an unselfish way, with no thought in the end of our own safety. Mm, so, just coming back to Article 23, was it bad timing to introduce it really just as SARS was winding down in July? Uh, I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. I think that the community was never given closure on SARS. Right. Um, that PR and um, publicity and, and communications can sometimes be overstated as necessities and wonderful professions. But in that particular case in 2003, I think they were vital. And somehow the end was never allowed to be drawn in a meaningful way. Mm. Somehow the community leaders never said, never articulated this thought. The community has done a wonderful job. The government has done a wonderful job. We've all been through a tremendously traumatic event, but we can now look forward to something different. Article 23 at that time, yes, probably a mistake. I actually think, of course, that Article 23 does have to be introduced sooner or later. Um, it's there in the basic law. It's Article 23, Hong Kong must make its own law, laws for handling subversion and so on. And, and it actually makes sense. I mean, in fact, we, we limp along with the old British official secrets ordinance with um, appropriate 
amendments to allow for the changes in terminology since the handover. So that's really ridiculous. Now, most of those sort of anti-treason legislations were brought in during wartime, including the Official Secrets Act. Do you think it's ever possible to get something like this through in peacetime? Uh, Well, I think it is a requirement under the basic law that we've got to meet sooner or later, but it's obviously getting more and more difficult as the years go by. I don't think that it was impossible in 2003. I'm sorry to say that I think the administration made big mistakes in the way they handled it in the sense that it became somehow a battle of wills. It did, didn't it? Uh, And the the thing was that it it got to a point where a draft, a full draft, was available. And um, very wise people in the community, very wise lawyers, were saying, this draft is not right. Well, that happens all the time with legislation, especially such complex legislation. Mm. But it doesn't mean that you can't put things right, that you can't keep discussing it until you've got a form of words that works. But that didn't happen. Mm. And instead, you've got this tremendous build-up of um, public unease. Uh, I came to Hong Kong in 1972, and one of the things that struck me uh, over my time in Hong Kong has been these periods when the whole community has seemed to think and feel together. I mean, extraordinarily notable, of course, was the atmosphere around the time of the Tiananmen Massacre and afterwards. But in the same way, the public security legislation 2003 was just the same. Everybody was against it. Everybody felt this was serious. And some of those old guard who've been activists for so long, Martin Lee and so on, could really marshal this tremendously dignified but enormously large-scale public response. Mm. So I think that was the last time that I've experienced this sort of thing, the whole community feeling, oh, we're very troubled about this, and the government responding to it as indeed they had to but I think probably and I don't know the inside story on this but I certainly always had the feeling and impression that from that moment onwards Beijing became more and more anxious about Hong Kong that they'd started off if we look right back to the 1980s thinking Hong Kong is wonderful Um, they were actually thinking rather can't we be more like Hong Kong Certainly thinking, Hong Kong is wonderful and we should leave it just as it is and it can look after itself. But from 2003 onwards, I believe that feeling began to drain away. Mm. They were horrified by the mass protests. They didn't want to see anything more like that. And from then onwards, they began more and more to think, we've got to keep an eye on this place and try and keep tabs on what's happening here. Rachel Cartland. So, anti-treason legislation makes sense, it seems. Or does it? No one was closer to the Article 23 action back in 2003 than former LegCo member and basic law expert Audrey Yu. She explains why Article 23 failed to launch. The Secretary for Justice, uh, then, Elsie Leung, wanted to introduce uh, Article 23, and I think the 
biggest problem at the time was that she wanted to push it through uh, the last day of that particular legislative session, which was the 9th of July 2003. So we were still all in the middle of post-SARS and all of that? Yeah, because... um, the first thing, I was then in LegCo, and the first thing uh, really we wanted was to have what was called a white paper before a blue bill. Um, in other words, to have a consultation in the terms of the actual wording of mm. the bill to be put through. Normally, if government puts forward a bill, then it's in, uh, printed on blue color paper. And before that, the government really consults generally on the matter of principle rather than the actual wording of the bill. But when, uh, in by the end of 2002, when government, Elsie Leung in particular, wanted to introduce national security legislation as a lawyer, I was then in LegCo, and um, together with Margaret, uh, who's also my colleague in LegCo, also a lawyer, um, we uh, tried to get the government to put out a, a, a white paper, which is the draft of the legislation uh, by way of a consultation, uh, okay. instead of just consultation on principle. And because Elsie Leung wanted the legislation to be passed by LegCo uh, by the 9th of July in the following year, uh, she was not willing to consult with a white bill. I was then in LegCo very much involved with the um, the uh, the bills committee uh, stages studying the wording uh, and at that time most people in Hong Kong when they switch on the news they were seeing SARS and how you have to wash your hands, wash your hands and wash your hands. You remember Mrs. Tong uh, going on TV all (laughs) dressed in a sort of space suit and telling everybody to wash their hands. In the Moi Gardens, uh, yeah. And also there were uh, some uh, doctors, nurses who who died as a result of SARS. So so people's attention was really tuned to uh, the epidemic and also uh, there was a lot of um, emotions about people being locked up in a hotel because of the outbreak of SARS. And the, it also affected, of course, economy as well. And Hong Kong sort of was de- declared a, uh, a sort of uh, a port where no uh, people, uh, other tourists would not come. Oh, our tourism numbers just disappeared. Didn't yeah, so, so a lot of attention was really turned to that. Nobody was really concentrating on the Bills Committee. And I remember being asked by the reporters then, well, what do we do? What do Hong Kong people do? And I had no idea what Hong Kong people would do because A, people's attention was in SARS and B, because I thought well, national security legislation was not really a top priority uh, and top concern for ordinary folks who wasn't thinking of uh, treason. Uh, but then, uh, as we approached uh, the 1st of July and also the deadline, which is the 9th of July, for passing uh, this uh, uh, bill, um, Hong Kong was recovering from SARS. And I think it was really May or June when people's sort of attention then gradually shifted to the Article 23 legislation, and people were sort of wondering, what was it about? I was also then hosting a commercial uh, radio uh, show, a morning show, and 
it uh, was not my show, but I was just a stand-in for Albert Zengdai Ban, and it happened to be the most popular show um, radio program okay. in Hong Kong at the time because Dai Ban was then nicknamed uh, the CE before ten o'clock because his live show sort of went from eight to ten. And I remember every morning I had about three hours on the radio uh, telling people about Article 23 and also what it was about. And also I was calling on people to talk to the functional representatives in LegCo and say, you have to uh, really uh, veto the bill because the government was going to push it through. And that was the really the message. So you didn't approve of it? Well, at a time, uh, in particular, Margaret and I, we were very concerned with the wording and we were worried that it was going to uh, really create a hole in the Hong Kong legislation uh, and bring uh, the uh, mainland legislation into Hong Kong. By the back door. By yeah. the back door, because national security is really going to be as defined by uh, the central authorities. Yeah. And also, um, we were concerned about things like sedition because it, it's really about, you know, uh, uh, punishing you because of what you've written and uh, basically um, uh, criminal uh, criminalization through um, a speech. And a lot of the librarians were very worried as well because uh, uh, they would be keeping a lot of books and they're worried that, well, what if these books are considered inflammatory or seditious and what's the test? And because Hong Kong people also value, you know, freedom of expression, freedom mm. of speech and all that. So if you have a very narrow definition of uh, national uh, security in particular, you know, with central authorities, they always think that uh, stabilization is their, is their key and um, everything that they think would uh, somehow be critical of the government and leading to mass protests and things of that sort will be considered, uh, well, you know, highly unsatisfactory or risky or dangerous or it may endanger the, the safety and the stability of the regime. Uh, and they really link uh, not really question of territorial integrity, which is how we normally look at national security. It's about territorial in integrity. You don't split up the country. But for the communist uh, government, it's really stability of the communist uh, ruling party. Right, right. And so if you do anything that's too critical of the communist regime, then it may endanger their rule. And to them, that's national security, uh, not so much uh, purely uh, territorial integrity. Right. And so that's why, I mean, there's really a clash of uh, Hong Kong people's view or perception of national security vis-a-vis uh, -vis the, the communist way of looking at it. So that's why we're very worried that uh, the legislation as put forward by the government um, is, is really going to affect uh, rule of law. And it's not really how ordinary people and particularly common law lawyers would we generally mm. look at the, the concept of national security. Well, it hasn't gone away, and it's still on the books, isn't it? So where do you see it going? Well, um, so, so, so when the government introduced the bill, the other thing that we said at the time was that uh, on the books, there are already a lot of very outdated legislation, mm. uh, which is really brought in by the British colonial government uh, with, for the protection of the Queen and so on. And they wanted just uh, in a way to convert uh, many of that to really protecting 
you know, uh, state leaders and, and um, the, the government and all that. And we said uh, you should do away with antedated laws, but then really you have to modernize it. You cannot just uh, adapt it as such. Uh, and th that's why, uh, in a way, uh, in, the, in the beginning, um, I was not really uh, opposed in principle to Article 23 legislation because it can do some good by really repealing some of the more outdated laws. But the way that the government went about it, and particularly uh, setting a deadline uh, of uh, really uh, 9th of July and all that, uh, plus the condition that Hong Kong was in shortly after the recovery of SARS, and I think that was really the main problem. So. Uh, Certainly, I in Lechko and also you know hosting this uh, radio program is telling people that you have to be concerned and you have to know about this. Mm. Uh, and uh, the, the feeling I got at the time was that well, most Hong Kong people were not really concerned about it, and it was really towards uh, the uh, end of May and, and and really in the I think that the height was the middle of the June when I thought well, it's almost as if people were wakening up after SARS, you know, they were emerging from mm. uh, the depression of SARS and they, their attention then turned uh, to what was happening in Lechko with this bill. And increasingly, I mean, I was in the street and I was on the lifts and, and strangers would, would say to me, oh, yeah, we very well were too, we'll, we will march on the 1st of July and so on. And, um, you know, there are seven parts of Article 23, in particular um, uh, uh, treason, se uh, secession, sedition, subversion, theft of state secrets, and then um, li liaison and so on with foreign political organizations, establishing ties with foreign political organizations, and so on. So there were seven aspects of it, and we called that the seven sins. And then uh, we had the Article 23 concern group, and um, we uh, chose the colors of the rainbow. You know, it happened to be seven colors, and so <laughs> each of us, uh, all lawyers, uh, then was in charge of one particular aspect, and we said we would make these caps, uh, color, seven colored uh, hats, you know, red, green, and, and yellow, and so on, uh, for each uh, aspect under Article 23, and we invited people to come and join us in the march, and we said we'd distribute the caps. And we didn't really ever <laughs> in our wildest imagination thought that so many people would turn up and of course we ran out of caps very soon and we also asked people to uh, gather at the central library instead of the Victoria Park so uh, we would uh, be distributing caps there, and we would then meet up with the, with the um, uh, big party uh, mm. from Victoria Park and uh, also, I think on that day, uh, the government had allowed another organization to uh, use uh, the Victoria Park football pitches, uh, not the, uh, the group that was organizing the 1st of July. And the interesting thing was that for that uh, really pro-government uh, organization that had the football pitches, they were sort of practically empty. And then... Uh, Everybody was on the... And, and, and on the other side, where the organisers of the 1st of July march uh, were gathered, it was all the, all the grasses and so on, and it was packed. 
And also because the police said before uh, the 1st of July that they would not count uh, the people uh, unless they start from Victoria Park. So everybody was rushing to Victoria Park and it was really uh, chaotic. To make sure they got counted. To make sure they got counted. And also, uh, it was one of the hottest days in July. It was. it was, I think, 33 or 35 degrees or whatever. And because so many people were uh, sort of uh, coming to uh, uh, inside Victoria Park, pushing in, the people who were er- there early in Victoria Park just couldn't come out. And so people were stuck in Victoria Park for five <laughs> hours without uh, the, the use of toilet facilities. I think. And, uh, but the Hong Kong people were really, really uh, orderly, very peaceful, not a, a pane of uh, glass was broken. And I remember being stuck in one of the narrow streets because people were coming in to join. So it was really blocking the, our way forward. So we were stuck in one of the side streets, one of the lanes, for almost an hour and I remember standing there in weltering heat and people next to me would be passing along fans and uh, uh, cartons of uh, drinks (laughs) for free (laughs) just to, uh, you know, chat up everybody. And and the mood actually uh, was uh, festive. The thing is, most people uh, should be very upset because you have to be very angry to come out and join a march like that. But the next day, when I look at many of the photographs of the march, you can see people were in a festive mood. They're actually dancing about, raising their hands, smiling, clapping each other on the back. And I I think the mood was jubilant because everybody was very surprised that so many people actually came out and and therefore uh, were of the like mind and th- that was i think what was amazing <laughs> about the article 23 march on the 1st of july 2003 audrey you so they called article 23 the seven sins what could possibly go wrong china watcher mark o'neill has a few ideas about what could indeed yet go wrong when we finally get article 23 As new chief executive Carrie Lam promises, we will. He explains what it could mean for ordinary people and why the new chief executive is caught between the proverbial rock and the hard place. Uh, It's quite hard to answer this question because we haven't seen a text of it. Um, uh, So we cannot in detail analyse the answer. But from what happened in 2003 and from the material we have seen... Can I say what makes people uneasy about this? There is a clause referring to the theft of state secrets. Now, in mainland China, this has an extremely broad definition. What is a state secret? I once asked someone at the People's Daily what was a state secret. He said, anything that is not published in the People's Daily is a state secret. Really? And so you you will see that in arrests of dissidents, lawyers, journalists in the mainland, they often use this theft of state secrets against them as the charge. And the, the courts, are, it's usually held in, in secret, so we don't know what the, the item involved is. So it's a very catch-all phrase. So, for example, in, in the Hong Kong newspapers, we often 
see a headline of a, a document uh, from the government, a document from a company, some document smuggled in from the mainland, and this is the front page news. Well, using a mainland definition, that's a state secret. So the person who published that or the person who obtained that could be criminally charged. So this is one thing that people are alarmed about. Now, that's a really good point. Now, we've all lived with this, like the bogeyman, since, indeed, 2003. Do you think it would have been better to have just sucked it up and done it then when we would have uh, drafted it ourselves in Hong Kong and it would have been a, a debated, probably milder version? Or do you think we'll now get a, a draft straight from Beijing written by them? Well, as I understand, in 2003, it was done in a great rush. There was not a public consultation. There had not been a white paper people didn't have the chance to read the whole document so it was very flawed then so I think the minimum conditions now must be there be a period of public consultation the whole document be made public the, the public professional groups everyone has a chance to comment and criticize and a version uh, come out that includes the opinions of all the different stakeholders. Right. Now, how do you think Beijing views Hong Kong and its behaviour over Article 23 so far? Um, uh, extremely negatively, because Beijing says you have to pass this as part of the basic law, and now we're 20 years since the handover, and you still, you still haven't done it. Macau has done it. And... Beijing is alarmed by various developments in Hong Kong. Of course, the Occupy Central was something uh, very alarming for, for Beijing. Mm. Recently, there's this fake news about Hong Kong independence, that people in Hong Kong want to be independent. This is extremely alarming to people in Beijing. So Beijing feel there is a, a very adequate reason why Hong Kong should have this legislation to protect against these kind of things in the future. So their opinion is, uh, we've given you 20 years, you still haven't done it, so you really have to, to do it, and it's your constitutional duty to do it. So no, no choice anymore. How quickly do you think Carrie Lam will uh, voice this upon us? I mean, I think she's caught between a rock and a hard place because she knows that it's extremely unpopular. Uh, she knows Beijing wants it done quickly. So... I've read various suggestions. One is that you do it very gradually, which is you start with the least controversial elements. So piece by piece. Yes. And you do it uh, gradually. You, uh, you consult a lot with the public. You explain everything. You say that any courts are done through the existing... Uh, Hong Kong criminal justice system, mm. which is there's a, a trial. Many of them will be trial by jury. They will be judged. It will be the same system. It won't be the mainland system. And you use as much of the existing Hong Kong legislation on human rights as possible. Mm. So, you, in other words, you can't go beyond what's already in the Hong Kong law books. So you start with the easy parts. You get them to be accepted and then you move on later to the more difficult and the more controversial parts. That was China commentator Mark O'Neill. I'm Anna Fenton. Join me again next week when I chart the evolution of the administration and the civil service since the handover.